And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you very much. Well, I've got some good news. Our heater's off. The boiler's shot. And you know what the good news is? It's not 40 below. So if you're a little cold, just kind of scrunch in, and we'll take care of that. Um, How many of you over Thanksgiving, your Thanksgiving meal ate too much, and you had your plate pile full of food, and you got about two-thirds of the way through, and you realized you were in trouble, and you started looking for the family dog? Anybody here? Well, that happened this week to my sermon. I put too many, too much, too much to say, too much to digest. And so on the very last page, when life is hard, thankfulness, I'm not going to cover point two and point six. I've incorporated it with the others. They're going to show you the slides so you'll be able to know what the points are. But I, I wanted just to make sure we were able to get through everything in a way that was meaningful today. The Mayflower arrived in Plymouth, Massachusetts on December 16, 1620. Those ordinary men and women and their children left England because Henry VIII had declared himself the head of the church. And the people that were on that boat wanted their worship of God to be less formal and more personal. They wanted not only to learn about God in the framework of an institution, they wanted the Holy Spirit to speak to them in the framework of real life. Well, when they got to their new country, that first year was challenging to say the least. They had to find a place where they could build a settlement. They made a treaty of protection with the Wampoag Indian tribe. They planted crops and they learned to live in and with the land. And those were successes, but in spite of those successes, there was some gut-wrenching heartache. Many people died that first year. They died of scurvy. They died of pneumonia caused by a lack of vitamin-rich food because of limited shelter and severe weather. In fact, two to three people died each day, leaving only 52 people of the original 102 that boarded the ship originally in England. But in spite of all the hardship, in spite of the struggle, in spite of the challenges of making this new country their home, in the fall of 1621, the settlers gathered together with their Native American friends and they gave thanks. They gave thanks for all God had done. And you know, when I read this account again this week, I thought, man, they had a really, really bad year, a hard year. Fifty people died, family members, people they knew, they loved, they worked with, they had came to know. They had incredible obstacles, and I'm sure there was uncertainty. There were probably times when each one of them thought, man, did we make the right decision when we left England. But in spite of all the hardship, they gave thanks. In spite of all the death, they celebrated God's goodness. It's been nearly 400 years since that first Thanksgiving, and the call to give thanks, the call to recognize God's goodness, His provision, His love, His grace, His mercy, has not changed. Psalm 100 says, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people and sheep of His pasture. Enter enter into His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and His faithfulness to all generations. This psalm and numerous other psalms and other passages of Scripture are basically calls to give thanks. 
And we look at this psalm, and we find this psalm specifically, and we find three specific truths, facts about why we are to give thanks. Number one, we give thanks because we choose to to give thanks. Number one, we choose to give thanks. Psalm 100 verse 1 says, Make a joyful noise to the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 continues this thought and says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Numerous verses throughout the Bible tell us what God wants us to do and what he wants us not to do. We are told not to lie, not to cheat, not to steal, or not to continually hang out with people who make a habit of lying, cheating, and stealing. We are told to be kind, to be the first to forgive, to make sure that what comes out of our minds, mouths, is such that builds people up rather than tears them down. But here's the point. Someone can command that we give thanks, but no one can force us to be genuinely thankful. No one can force us to look for the good and the hardships of life. No one, by demanding, can create within us a genuine, thankful heart. No one can force us to believe that God can make good come out of bad. There are certain attitudes and character traits that we come to embrace simply through experience. As you go through bad and difficult hardships and you discover that God is present, we learn to say, thank you, God, you're here. When in the midst of difficulties you can see God doing good, we learn to say, God, you are a good God. And some things, some of the things that God calls us to do are only brought to reality in our life through the experience of understanding and choosing. Sometimes you and I need to get down on our knees. We need to come before God and say, God, please do this in my life. God, make me a more thankful person. In 1940, Dr. J. Edwin Orr took a group of Wheaton College students to England to study. And while they were there, they saw a lot of different landmarks. And one of the places they stopped was called the Epworth Rectory. The rectory now serves as a Methodist museum, but at one time it was the home of John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement. We know that John Wesley was a man who was greatly used by God. He went against the Church of England in their liturgy saying that it is the gospel of Christ. It is the death and resurrection of Christ alone where our foundation, our salvation is found. Over the course of his life, he rode over 250,000 miles on a horse, preaching and proclaiming the message of this gospel. In one of the bedrooms of the Epward, of the Epward home, There are two impressions on the floor where it is believed that John Wesley regularly knelt and prayed. As the students were getting back on the bus, Dr. Orr noticed that one of the students was missing. And going back upstairs, Dr. Orr found a young Billy Graham kneeling in those exact knee holes praying these words, O Lord, do it again. O Lord, do it again. Make your presence known. Bring people to a knowledge of you. Sometimes within our lives, friends, when there are things that we want God to do, things in our life that we need God to change, aspects, character traits, habits, or opinions, or thoughts, or attitudes, we need to come before God and say, God, do this in me. Change this. Change that. Make me a more thankful person. Billy Graham says, Lord, do it again. Maybe our prayer is, God, make me willing and able and open to be thankful for all that you've done. 
Number two, the second reason we're called to give thanks is because God's love endures forever. In verse 5, it says, For the Lord is good, His steadfast love endures forever. Now, what does it mean that God's steadfast love endures forever? When I first think of the word endure, I think what comes into my mind is having to endure something. To get through something that tests my patience or going to the dentist and waiting for that jab of pain. The endurance is such that I'm having to get through this, right? But there is another picture to endurance. And endurance is a character trait of strength. A character trait that is continuous and lasting. And what does the psalmist say? It says God's love is endures. His steadfast love endures. Friends, there's nothing that you can do to make God's love not love you. God's love not touch you. There is God endures our unfaithfulness. God endures our lack of belief. God endures our sinful character, our sinful nature. He endures that, and His steadfast love remains present and applicable to our lives. The writer of 1 Corinthians says, Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is what? Is love. God's steadfast love endures forever. The psalmist is saying, God's love is enduring. There's nothing that can stop it, weaken it, or reduce it until it's gone. God's love never fails. Number three, we are to give thanks because God's faithfulness continues to all generations. Again, verse 5, and His faithfulness to all generations. Faithfulness means that God is reliable and that He's trustworthy, that He will never give up on you, and that He will always expect the best of you. See, God's faithfulness is not only just about Him, it's also about us. It's about God having an expectation about how we relate to Him, that we, in response to His faithfulness, will be faithful in return. See, no matter what, friends, God is with you. Regardless of your sin, His death and His resurrection cover it. When everyone else is critical and condemning, God is waiting and ready to let you know that you are loved, accepted, and that you can have a new beginning, a new day. Remember the psalm that says His mercies are new every morning? That means that's not just a thought. That is a truth. Every day for you, tomorrow morning when you wake up, God's mercy is new. God's faithfulness is continuous. His love is enduring. There's a Russian fable that tells of a Russian master and his servant who went on a journey, a journey to a city. And before the two men could reach their destination, they were caught in a blinding blizzard and they lost their direction and weren't able to get to the city before night came. And the next morning, some of their friends went out and they realized they hadn't come and they went out looking for him. And they finally found the master frozen to death, face down in the snow. And when they lifted him up, they found the servant underneath him cold but alive. And after he had warmed up, he told them how the master had voluntarily placed himself on top of the servant so the servant could live. The master covered the servant in the same way God's love covers us. His sacrifice, his resurrection, his love covers our sin. He is always faithful, always loving. He died so we could live. So how do we take these characteristics that we choose to give thanks, that God's love is enduring, that His faithfulness continues to every generation, how do we take the meat of that and apply it to our daily lives? I want to do it in two ways this morning. First I want to, first I want to talk about the significance of thankfulness to us when life is going well. And number two, I want to talk about the importance of thankfulness when life is hard. First of all, when life is good, thankfulness, number one under this section, when life is good, thankfulness keeps my focus on God. 
Psalm 141.8 says, But my eyes are towards you, O God, my Lord, in you I seek refuge. Leave me not alone. Psalms 145.15 says, The eyes of all look to you. Both of these verses and other passages of scriptures tell us that throughout the course of our lives, throughout the course of each day, you and I are to have our eyes trained on Jesus. Now, how well do we do at maintaining our spiritual focus, to maintaining our spiritual um, our spiritual commitment to Christ. Now, if you're like me, I find it much more natural to be focused on God when I am struggling or I have encountered something that is leaving me feeling insecure and vulnerable. When times are good, when stress is low, when expectations are positive, I have a tendency to drift towards spiritual complacency. My need for God seems lower because my life is going smoother. And here's where thankfulness comes in. When you and I develop a discipline of regularly giving thanks, and let me put it this way, when we regularly remember what God has done, when we take blocks of time and we do a spiritual review and say, God, thank you. Thank you for how you cared for me and how you grew me during this time of my life. Thank you, God, for how you met a need and answered a prayer, how you pulled me out of a pickle and gave me more than I deserved. I begin to see how much I need God, and my dependency on God grows in those good times, and I say, oh, God, I need you as much now as I do then. I just don't realize it from the scope of my emotions of feeling secure. And we begin, as we remember, to have our focus placed back on God. Throughout the Old Testament, After God did something significant, God's people made monuments. After God opened the Red Sea and the Israelites crossed through it, when they got to the other side, they took a pile of stones and made a monument, remembering God's faithfulness to get them across the Red Sea. When Moses went up to Mount Sinai and made this covenant with God, when he came back down, he put some stones together in a pile as a monument of God's faithfulness. This is it. When you and I focus too much on ourselves. Our focus gets off God. We have to go back to our own personal piles of stones. And we have to say, God, thank you. We have to remember all he has done, be reminded of his protection, reminded of his provision, and in thankfulness say, Lord, my turn my eyes again to you. Number two, when times are good, thankfulness keeps pride and self-sufficiency from taking root in my life. James 4, 6 says this, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That verse is both a warning as well as a proclamation. The warning is God opposes the proud. So whenever pride becomes a dominant feature in our life, we are in opposition to God. The proclamation is that God gives grace to the humble. So we have to ask ourselves, do we want to be in opposition with pride or do we want God's grace through humility? Our natural tendency, friends, is to be self-sufficient. That's what I find. To protect ourselves by not needing anyone, and if you have been hurt by someone, the emotional pain you've experienced can even push you further into a life of semi-isolation where you try to live on your own, on your own resources, your own ability, separating yourself from others. And sometimes, friends, we do this without even realizing we're doing it. We, for whatever reason, don't feel safe, and so we pull back. And while pride and self-sufficiency can be something we believe about ourselves, some people genuinely think they're better than others and don't have to relate. Someone once described pride as filling out a crossword puzzle with an ink pen. Not going to make a mistake. But other times, pride becomes a smokescreen that we put up to hide our fear and insecurity. 
We think if we come across as distant and together, people will keep their distance and our insecurity and fear will remain hidden. People won't know what's really going on inside of me. And here again is where thankfulness comes in. When we are thankful, when we say, God, thank you for doing this. Thank you for meeting that need. Thank you for this provision. Thank you for supporting me. Thank you for sustaining me. We again see that we are not as self-sufficient as we think we are. And we even think, and we thank God, we realize how God has brought other people into our life to support and encourage and direct and stand with us. And we begin to realize that this concept of using Self-sufficiency and pride as a means of protection is a fallacy. And we say, God, forgive me. And Psalm 52, 9 comes to mind where we say, God, I will thank you forever for what you have done. And I will trust in you because you were good. So we move from self-sufficiency and pride to saying, God, I trust in you. Why? Because you are good. When we cling to the reality that God is good and list and give thanks for the ways he has cared for us, Pride and self-sufficiency is pushed aside, making room for an honest expression of dependence upon God. Friends, all of us need Him. All of us need Him. And we have to believe that He is good so that we trust Him with our lives. Number three, the third way that thankfulness helps us is that thankfulness affirms my trust in God, nothing else. In Psalm 20, Verses 7 and 8, the psalmist makes this observation. He says, Some nations boast of their chariots and horses, but we boast in the name of the Lord our God. Those nations will fall down and collapse, but we will rise up and stand firm. What the writer of this psalm identifies is the tendency we have to trust in those things that we can see, those things that are measurable, those things that are substantial, whether it be our bank account or our property or our position or even our personality. Items that if we have them, we have a tendency to trust in them. We have a tendency to move toward them for our security. And then in verse 8, the psalmist says, be careful. He says, the nations that trust in horses and chariots, the the people that trust in external things that we can see, will fall down and collapse, but those who trust in God will rise up and stand firm. What a picture, that those that trust in God, those that know their God, can rise up and stand firm. When you give God thanks for caring for you in the past, you place yourself in God's hands for the present because you believe that the God that is unseen but present, is good and he will guide you. And we put more and more. See, so much of our spiritual life, friends, is moving to the point where we trust God more and more. We see his goodness more and more. We put our trust in him more and more. We depend on him more and more. And friends, whenever you do that, you know what God does? God proves himself faithful. Whenever you trust him, he proves himself faithful. And God tests us regularly he tests us to see what is our degree of trust and oftentimes friends the degree of trust that we give to God determines the picture of how big we see God and the blessings we receive from God now let's switch gears here and talk about thankfulness from a perspective of hardship when you are going through a difficult time why should you be thankful let me give you four reasons number one when life is hard thankfulness reminds me that god is good now how many of you have ever had something happen to you that caused you to doubt or question that god is good now you might never have verbalized that god you're not good you allowed that to happen but there are other things we do that give evidence that we doubt that god is good or at the very least we doubt he is good all the time We complain, we grumble, we get mad, we bury our anger, we have throw our own little fit of 
of self-absorption. And we say whatever happened doesn't only, doesn't just not make sense. It's painful. We might even think it's cruel and unnecessary. And then we say this, God, it doesn't seem to be fair. See, sometimes we have trouble in believing that God can take the difficulties of our life and turn them into something good. In Romans chapter 8, he says, For I know that all things work together for good for those that love God and are called into His purposes. And that's a really fine verse, except when it applies to us. That's a really good verse for somebody else, right? That's a really good verse for somebody else. But when it gets to me, it becomes personal, and that friend is a test. Do we really believe this verse, and do we thank God that good is going to come out of it, or do we allow the difficulty of our situation to color how we see God? Do we believe that all things can work together for good. There's an African folktale about a king and his friend who grew up together and did everything together. And the king's friend had this <clears throat> saying, in every circumstance, after something happened, he would say, this is good. Well, one day the king and his friend were out hunting. The friend loaded the shotgun, he loaded the gun, the king shot it, it blew up, and it blew off his thumb, the king's thumb. Well, the friend said, this is good. The king didn't think it was good. He got mad and said, you loaded the gun, and he threw his friend in jail. About a year later, the king was out hunting. It was captured by cannibals. The king was taken to their village, tied at the stake. Wood was put around it, and he thought to himself, this is not good. But just before lighting the fire, one of the cannibals noticed that the king's thumb was missing, and according to tribal condition, tradition, they could never eat anyone who wasn't whole, so they untied him and let him go. When the king realized that his missing thumb was what spared his life, he immediately thought of his friend that he had thrown in jail over blowing up his thumb a year ago. He went to his friend, he said, you're right, it was good that my thumb was blown off. I'm sorry for sending you to jail. Your being in jail is not good. And to which his friend said, no, it was good. And the king didn't understand. What do you mean this is good? I sent my best friend to jail for a, for a year. How could have it been good? And the friend insisted, this is good, because if I had not been in jail, I would have been hunting with you, and I still have my thumb. <laughs> Here's the question. Here's the question. Is there room in your life to thank God for His goodness in the midst of difficulty? Is there room in our spiritual, in our relationship with Jesus to say, God, I thank you in this circumstance and I believe that you can bring good out of it? You know what that does, friends? When we pray that prayer, we begin looking for the good. We begin anticipating God to show up. We begin to wonder, what is God going to do in this situation that is going to change my life? See, in the flood, Noah realized that God could provide and protect for he and his family. Without the desert experience, Moses would have never seen or heard the burning bush. Apart from jail, Joseph never would have risen to a position of prominence and saved his family from the famine. I have discovered in my life that more often than not, it's been the difficulties of life that have changed me more than the good times. When I'm open to say, God, show me the good, help me embrace it. Number two, when life is hard, thankfulness reminds me that I'm not alone. We're going to skip to number three, which is thankfulness opens my heart and mind to hear from God. You know what can close us off from God quicker than anything? Anger and resentment. My mentor used to talk to me about anger and anger spewing out. And he said, Barry, you can't spit and swallow at the same time. You can't spit out and expect to receive and hear God when he's speaking to you. 
Hebrews 3, 7 and 8 said, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. What's that verse saying? First, it's saying that God tested them in the wilderness and the response to their test, to this test was that they hardened their hearts against God. They didn't open their minds to hear from him. We harden our hearts when we allow a lack of gratitude or a willful desire to do what we want, to disobey God, to take prominence over hearing God. Two things can close us off from God. Letting anger get so prominent in our life that, that all we can do is spew forth what's built up within us that's negative. And the other thing that can destroy our ability to hear God is a, a disobedience to God, willfully being disobedient. John had served on the seas since he was 11 years old. His father was an English shipmaster in the Mediterranean and trained, and trained John well for a future life in the Royal Navy. But what John gained in experience, he lacked in discipline. He ran with the wrong, car, wrong crowd and indulged in the sinful ways of a sailor. And instead of rising up to serve as an officer in the Navy, he was flogged and he was demoted. In his early 20s, he made his way to Africa, where he became intrigued by the slave trade. At age 21, he was using the experience he gained at his father's hand to work on the ship, the slave ship, the Greyhound. John made fun of those who were religious and disregarded the truth of God's word. He thought it was meaningless, irrelevant, and had no purpose for his life. But one night, his life changed. That night, the waves pummeled the ship that he was captaining, and he woke up to find his cabin filled with water. One side of the ship had collapsed while the other, sh other ships would have sunk. The Greyhound was carrying buoyant cargo and it stayed afloat. John worked all night pumping water. For nine hours they struggled to keep the ship from sinking. And finally, when everyone knew that there was nothing else they could do to save the ship, John threw himself on the saltwater-soaked deck and he pleaded with God. He said, if this will not do, then Lord have mercy on us all. If we can't save the ship, it's only your mercy, God, that will save us. Well, John did not deserve mercy, but he received it. The Greyhound and her crew survived. And from that day on, John was filled with gratitude for God's answer to his prayer. Not just for his rescue at sea, but for the rescue God had in redeeming his life. He returned to England and became a powerful voice from behind the pulpit. He also wrote songs, one of them all of us have probably heard. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. John Newton learned that God can open even the most rebellious heart so that they will listen to him, so that they will hear him. When we are saved, God wants to remove our anger. He wants to replace our disobedience with obedience. And at the end of his life, John Newton said this. He said, I, my memory is almost gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that God is a great Savior. Number four, thankfulness allows me to see my problems as challenges, not as threats. Thankfulness lets me see my problems as challenges, not as threats. Psalm 56.3 says, When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. When we are fearful, often the thing that's causing our fear is seen as a threat. To something, a threat is something that we feel is going to take something away from us that we can't, can't replace. We see something as having the power to destroy our security and to leave us vulnerable, helpless, and dependent. But this is it, friends. 
when we begin to understand that God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in times of trouble, our thinking about how we handle problems changes. In 2 Chronicles 32, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, had come into Judah and was encamped along the outside of Jerusalem. And they wanted to take over the city of Jerusalem. And what they had done is cut off their water supply, thinking if they're without water along, either they'll run out to try to get them and we can capture them, or they'll be so weak that we can overrun the city. Well, the king of Judah was Hezekiah, a godly man. And he met with the people of Jerusalem. He rallied them together. He took action and fortified the city. And then he gathered the people together and he said this, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of the king of Assyria or his mighty army, army, for there is a far greater power on our side. He may have a great army, but they are merely men. We have the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles for us. Hezekiah's words greatly encouraged the people. It's in that battle... He encouraged the people. He said this to the people, but King Sennacherib continued to offer threats and taunts to the people living in Jerusalem, saying, what are you going to do? Your God is not here. Your God cannot save you. But Hezekiah's words were true because one night the angel of God came into the Assyrian camp and destroyed the Assyrian army. God delivered them. The situation was dire. And Hezekiah was probably dealing with his own fear, but he did not allow his fear to control him. What was the difference? He turned this problem into a challenge to be solved rather than a a threat to be run from, and God was the difference maker. Daniel 11.32 says this, but the people who know their God will be strong and will resist him. To resist, not to run, to overcome, not be overwhelmed. When confronted with a problem that's bigger than we are, we are to pray, Philippians 4.13, Oh God, I can do all things through you who gives me strength. Mark Batterson, who pastors a church in Washington, D.C., tells of having a decision or a conversation with a city council member who was running for mayor in the election. And at the end of their time together, Mark asked him what he could pray for, and he thought maybe this councilman would say, well, pray for the election, that I'll do well. But you know what the council member asked for? He says, please pray that I don't let fear dictate my decisions. Pray, God that, it, pray that it's God, my faith in God, my trust in Him, to be a man of courage and to pray with faith, not with fear. And number five, Thankfulness gives my faith the opportunity to grow and to become strong. James 1, 2, and 4, 2 to 4 says, Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. Imagine that. Every problem you get is a reason to celebrate. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. Thankfulness transforms life's problems to life's possibilities. James tells us whenever trouble comes into our life, we are to celebrate the problem, to embrace it, to hold on to it as a source of growth, to suck every bit of learning we can out of that problem so that God can use that problem to shape us and to mold us. Our prayer is to be, God, I thank you for this problem and I look forward to seeing how you're going to use it in my life for my good and for your glory. Now does that prayer sound a little unrealistic, a little out of touch? Let me suggest this. Friends, you are going to go through that problem anyway. So you might as well go through it believing God can use it in your life. Because when a problem overwhelms me, it's usually because I see the problem as bigger than God. When I enlarge the picture of my God, the problem becomes smaller and manageable. 
Again, 1 Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Why is it the will of God? Because God wants to use our problems to shape our life. So we need to pray, God, give me a bigger picture of you so that when I encounter my problems, I'm coming at it from not my limited faith, but from your unlimited power. To end off this morning, how does God know I'm thankful? We talk about thankfulness, what it means, how to handle life in the good times, how to use thankfulness when life is hard. What is the true test of our thankfulness? In 1 Samuel 15, 22, Samuel is talking to Saul. Saul has been disobedient. He has disobeyed God. He has offered a sacrifice, thinking that his sacrifice is a replacement for being obedient. And this is what he says. And Samuel said, has the Lord as great has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to listen than the fat of rams. This verse simply tells us that the most important declaration of thankfulness that you and I will ever make is to obey God. John 14, 15 says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. We can say we love God, but only obey him when it's convenient and works according to what we want to do. What we need to believe is that when we obey God, that God is big enough for our obedience to come forth in ways that bless our life. Do you know that everything God tells us to do is so that our life is enhanced, so that we are being prepared for eternity in a way that when we get there, we will make a difference? God asks us to obey because he knows that obedience is the safest place we will ever be and puts us in a location where we will be able to hear from God and be used by God. Mark Batterson in his book, Whisper, tells a story of John G. Lake. On April 1st, 1908, John G. Lake had a vision, had a dream of himself being transported to South Africa and preaching there. The dream was repeated several times, and get a load of this, 18 days later, Lake and his family left for Africa with a dollar and 50 cents in their pockets. You say, that's crazy. Why would anybody do that? Well, Lake was well aware of the fact that it would cost his family $125 to get his family of eight through immigration when they got to South Africa, which was nearly 100 times what he had. But Lake felt that God was leading him and calling him to do that. Well, when their family arrived in South Africa, Lake got into the immigration line despite not having enough money to enter the country. And that is when someone tapped him on the shoulder and handed him $200. Lake then boarded a train for Johannesburg, but they still had no place to live. So what did they do? They prayed that God would provide. And when they arrived in Johannesburg, they were greeted at the train station by a woman named Miss Goodenough, what a great name, who said that God had told her to come and get them and give them a place to stay. John Lake was an integral part of the revival that swept through South Africa. He later returned to America and started 40 churches. What did he believe? He believed that his God was bigger than his problems. Remember what we talked about the first of the message. God wants to develop and create within us an attitude of thanksgiving. Not something we do because the Bible says give thanks, but something that is an expression of a character trait of an experience with God that has let us know that God is good, that he is faithful, that his love endures forever, and it is faithfulness to every generation, so that we don't just know that as fact, but we experience in our daily life. Friends, when we allow God, when we pray and say, God, help me to see your goodness, 
And God begins to answer our prayers. Our picture of God gets bigger and bigger. Our problems become smaller and smaller. And every time we do that, God has the opportunity to test us, to test us and strengthen our faith so that our thankfulness becomes increasing, our faith in God is increasing, our picture of God becomes bigger and bigger until we are with the the writer of Daniel in Daniel 7.32 that says that they that know their God will stand firm and they will be thankful. This Thanksgiving weekend, let's pray. Oh God, give me the experiences that allow me to see your goodness that out of seeing your goodness, I can genuinely give you thanks. Would you stand with me as we close this morning? Father, we pray today that our experience with you you, would not be something we have just been told to do. But Lord, we thank you that you are a personal God working within the fabric of our very lives to change us more into your image. So we come today saying, God, give us the experiences. Help us see your hand. Help us see your goodness. Help us see your enduring love. Help us see your faithfulness. And a result of that, may our trust in you grow. And may our thankfulness, Lord, grow out of our experience of your goodness and faithfulness and love. Change us, O God, from the inside out. And now as you leave, may the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord smile on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord show you his favor and give you his peace. Amen. Have a great day.